0: Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share their most recent work. This week, I had the exciting opportunity to chat with Dave Dunning, professor of psychology at the University of Michigan, where he directs the Self and Social Insight Lab. The lab studies questions such as how well do people know themselves and their competence and character? How and when do people successfully engage in self deception? How good are people as amateur psychologists trying to anticipate the thoughts, feelings, and actions of others? Most famously, Dave has worked on what is called the Dunning-Kruger effect, where the least competent individuals in a domain tend to be the most overconfident in their skills. In this episode, I ask Dave about trust. Who do we trust? How accurate are we in assessing another's trustworthiness? Why do we sometimes trust people we think are selfish? Why do we distrust people who are actually kind? What does trust have to do with respect? Is our kindness actually driven by negative, not positive emotions? Finally, Dave shares how to find a research idea worth pursuing and gives general advice for young academics curious about a career in psychology. Without further ado, here's our conversation. It is my absolute pleasure and honor today to be speaking with Dave Dunning about trust and respect and all these exciting issues. Before we get started, thank you, first of all, for making the time to join the podcast. Well, it's my honor to be here. Uh, Looking forward to it. Trust, respect. Everyone seems to care about these issues, and yet some people might be surprised to hear that you have done research in this space, given that your name is associated with many, many different topics. How did you first become interested in studying trust and respect?
1: I became interested because the the name of my lab is the Self and Social Insight Lab, or rather, where self-insight or social insight fails, and we try to cover both. And uh, the story of trust seems to be one of a failure in social insight. That is, people have theories about other people and how trustworthy they are that turn out to be wrong. And that's one of the ways I got involved. The specific moment I got involved is I had a postdoc visiting me, a German postdoc who was then in the Netherlands, Detlef Fetzenhauer, who's been a friend and collaborator ever since. He came to spend a few weeks in my lab and showed me these data about trust that made no sense. The good news is people trusted, but you couldn't figure out why they got there. So we set off, I'll just spend a few months and we'll figure out why people are doing these surprising things. And it turned into a 20-year collaboration with still a lot of mysteries involved in it. I mentioned one of the mysteries is that psychologists don't study trust as much as other fields do. And I think we have a lot to contribute and it's sort of interesting we don't, but uh, that's how I got involved.
0: I can't wait to delve into the misperceptions we have and the mistakes we make when we infer how trustworthy people are. But I feel like first we have to define trust. What does it mean to trust somebody?
1: If you go into the literature, philosophical, um, historical, psychological, economic, and so forth, you'll find many different definitions of trust. But one core way to think about trust is that you're willing to make yourself vulnerable to a person, actually take a risk they could uh, violate your trust, they could hurt you, with there potentially being some benefit uh, at the backside of it. So uh, you're willing to risk on another person, and you may lose. But you may also benefit, and both of you may benefit. And that's a core definition of trust. I think that overlaps with the over 20 different definitions I've seen in my readings.
0: It is interesting, and we will come back to this point later on, Many definitions entail some sort of expectations that the other person will be trustworthy. Now, I know that you have some issues with that definition and that maybe it is a little bit more complicated than that. But to the extent that there are expectations involved, how accurate are our expectations? Well, it turns out
1: that if you ask people directly, their expectations about the trustworthiness of other people aren't all that accurate. That is, people are much more cynical about everybody else than actually is the truth. But there are other sort of contradictions going on anyway, which is in our work, if you ask people how trustworthy people are in a specific economic game we have people play in the laboratory, uh, people are way off in their expectations about other people. But that's also discordant with their behavior. They go ahead and trust anyway. And that's the weird thing about trust, which is that you shouldn't do it. I mean, if you're an economist, and you're dealing with a stranger and we can set up a situation where you're doing this anonymous one-off potential transaction with another person, you will never know who they are. They will never know who you are. Everybody's doing everything in complete confidentiality. According to economists, you should never trust that person at all because why on earth should they be trustworthy back? I mean, we're all selfish, rational actors. You should be able to anticipate that and thus you should act rationally and selfishly as well and never trust. It's an interesting, well, it's it's a, a huge dilemma. I mean, people do go ahead and trust, but you do have to remember that in real life, we're trusting all the time. And in particular, we're trusting strangers. And if you take a, a strict economic analysis of it, we should never, ever do it. So in my community in a lot of different communities, There are these programs where you have cars that are set out on different corners and you can join the collective and you don't have to buy your own car. You don't have to pay for insurance. You can just sort of sign up. You pay a fee and you sign up to use one of the posted cars around town uh, when you need it and then bring it back for the next person to use it. Well, if you think about the fact there's a collective of people, you don't know who they are. They don't know who you are. Why on earth should we ever sign up for such a club? Because other people, I mean, if they're rational actors, are just going to take the cars and just take them, or they're going to not bring it back on time, or they won't fill up the gas, or they'll take the credit card that you're supposed to use to fill up the gas for their own expenses, making the fee higher for you. I mean, there's just a number of different ways that if we thought about it rationally, why would we ever join such a club? Because other other people are going to be selfish. And by the way, why would we ever go to a supermarket? Why do we ever assume uh, the supermarket company is actually providing food that's actually healthy and, and wonderful? I mean, sure, why not? Uh, why shouldn't they just sort of keep the spoiled meat until they can sell it? I think what I'm saying is we are trusting people a lot of times during the day. And we have misperceptions that in reality, what we're doing is we're committing acts of trust. The next time you get in your car and drive, you're trusting that everybody else is going to drive safely as well. So we have a lot of misperceptions about trust. We even have misperceptions where we don't perceive what we're doing as trust. But what we do is we look in the laboratory and ask, OK, when you're interacting with another person, do you have adequate expectations about how trustworthy they're going to be? And we see huge misses, just in terms of how trustworthy uh, people think others
0: are going to be. Our ability to tell if someone is trustworthy, of course, does not have to match our confidence about our ability to detect how trustworthy someone is. How do you think confidence plays into this? And maybe just briefly, of course, we have to bring it up, what people call the Dunning-Kruger effect. (laughs) What is it? And do you see it as explaining how we make decisions about trust?
1: I'm going to say this is one of the few places where the the Dunning-Kruger effect doesn't apply. It's a direct thing going on. I know what the Dunning-Kruger effect is, is we often or frequently don't know what we don't know. And our mistakes are invisible to us. Uh, So we make a lot of errors. We're just overconfident. We may invest in things we don't know anything about. Uh, I've always wanted to do a a study about Bitcoin and the people who are invested in Bitcoin, how much they really know about the risks of Bitcoin, for example. I'm stymied only by the fact that I don't know anything about Bitcoin. (laughs) Uh, And I know I don't know anything about Bitcoin. Trust is something, well, I think maybe indirectly Dunning-Kruger is involved. Because there are a lot of things about what influences other people's behavior, or the rules that other people live by, and the rules we live by, that we just have no awareness of. And as a consequence, we make mistakes about how other people are going to act. Uh, let, let me give you, for example, the, uh, the setup for the usual game we have people play in the lab, where they're paired up with another person. But this is all anonymous. They don't know who the other person is. The other person doesn't know who they are. They're never going to meet. We can set it up so that both of you are going to make decisions that we as experimenters won't know. We can set that up. So it's anonymous. And here's the game or here's the decision we ask you to do. We basically say, okay, here are $5 and there's a real $5 there. And you can either just keep the $5 and that's it. Or uh, there's another person you've been connected to and they know about the game. You can give that $5 to the other person. And what we'll do is we'll magically make the $5, $20. So we'll quadruple the size of the pot the money that's available. And person B, then will ha- have a decision to make. They can either keep the $20 or they can give you $10 back. So it's 10-10 uh, both ways. By the way, they're going to make their decision before they find out whether or not you decided to give the original 5 And uh, you can, if you're a listener, you can ask yourself, okay, in that setup, I've given you the $5 and there's a stranger somewhere. What's the likelihood? What's the chance that the other person would give you the $10 back? That is, wouldn't keep it all, but just give you $10 back. And you can come up with a percentage in your head. That's the first question we ask. And people tend not to really guess very accurately about what's the chance they'd actually get no profit from this. The second question I could ask you is, okay, are you going to give up the five? And what we get is the following. On average, people think there's about a 45% chance the person they're connected to is going to give the money back. The typical estimate is that uh, there's more of a chance you're going to get screwed than you're going to get $10 back. But in reality, the the real figure is 80%. 80% of people will give you the money back. And that surprises a lot of people. But the trick is even a lot of people who think they're going to get screwed, they don't think they're going to get money back. They go ahead and give the money anyway. I mean, we get 60, 70% of people decide to give up the money, even though they have in the economist terms, a negative expectation of return. And that's the mystery. And those are the data that Detlef uh, presented to me 20 years ago is that people were really making a miss in terms of social prediction, really underestimating the generosity, the reciprocity of their peers. But then they went ahead and did the right thing anyway that was going to profit them and also be nice. And that was just a weird set of contradictions that I just became fascinated by. But I do have to admit, anybody who's walked into doing work on trust often gets hooked because it's Alice in Wonderland. None of it initially makes any sense as to, okay, why do people think they're going to get screwed? They go ahead and trust anyway. Uh, why are they so wrong about other people? On the questionnaire, a lot of them have already marked that they're definitely going to give the money back themselves. So I don't They use themselves as a cue. Nothing goes the way that you would expect. So that's a long-winded answer, but I wanted to give
0: the basic way of the land. Yes, thank you. So. Well, why? (laughs) Why do we act as if we trust when actually we don't? Because it's
1: not about the expectation to get back to your original question, which is if you look at a lot of people's intuitions about trust and you look at at the research on trust, which merely is importing people's intuitions, uh, people tend to think about trust as the expectation of how trustworthy are other people. I mean, can I count on other people? Are they going to be nice? Are they going to do good? That's what a lot of people think trust is. In fact, on the big, big global survey about values, the the World Values Survey, they have one question on trust. And, you know, the question on trust is, do you expect other people to be trustworthy? That's what people tend to think trust is. And our work suggests that trust is not necessarily about expectation. What do you expect the other person to do? Do you expect to get rewarded back? And I I know a lot of listeners are kind of going, oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, no, it's not ridiculous. There's actually a difference between trust in your head, cognitively, do you think other people are trustworthy? And trust is behavior, what you decide to do. And we discovered that expectation plays a part, but it's a minor part in whether or not people are going to take a risk with another person. People are very willing to take risk on other people that they would never take a risk if it were a casino gambling lottery, for example. It's, it's really about well, what we discovered ultimately are the emotions that the decision to trust causes to well up in you, but more importantly, what's causing those
0: emotions. All right. So I am a truster in this game that you have described that people would call the trust game. I have the option to send you five dollars, will be quadrupled, and then I hope to get it back from you. I might not expect to get it back, and yet I send it over because I feel like it would be really rude not to do it. Right? So this is somewhat driving the effect, if I understand this correctly.
1: Well, you have you have more insight than a lot of our participants have in these studies because often in this very artificial situation, this is a situation that captivates. Our participants—they want to stay afterward and talk about it. It's really psychologically involving. Part of the reason why I stay in the work. Whatever's going on is artificial, but it's really real to people in the moment. But when we ask them, "Okay, what led you to give up the five to the other person?" They really don't have a clue in their head. They just sort of look blank. They don't know. And it's not only our lab, but our other uh, other labs have seen this as well. I mean, the interesting phenomenon here is that people do an action. And when you ask them in general, what led you to give up the five? They can't tell you. Or what they tell you is demonstrably false. Uh, For example, uh, sometimes, or the most common response we get when we ask, okay, you thought there was only a 30% chance of getting money back. What led you to give up five? By the way, in psychology, you never ask why, you ask what. If you ask why, you get theory. If you ask what, you get people talking about the concrete situation that they're in. And what people say is, uh, well, it's only five bucks. And then we immediately follow up with, okay, let me ask you this. You said there was a 30% chance of giving money back. If we did it, if it wasn't giving money to another person, but we, we're just spinning a lottery wheel and you had a 30% chance of winning $10 if you bet five on this lottery wheel, would you take it? And their immediate response is, no way, but it's only $5. Hmm. And, and people can't, Or it takes time for them to resolve the contradiction. What appears to be going on, and you've just alluded to it, is that it's really not about the outcome do you win or lose. You're in a situation where you have to take a risk on the other person. And it's not really about probabilities or sizes of payoffs and so forth. It's really about the action itself, trusting the other person or not trusting the other person. And what those actions directly mean. You know, giving the $5 to the other person is a risk, and it causes people to be anxious in a lottery or in, in the, the trust situation that I've just talked about. If you ask about keeping the $5, it also makes people incredibly anxious, tense, nervous. And we've finally been able to figure out the reason why is they don't want to insult the other person. They don't know this other person, they don't want interact with this other person. Taking a leap to make a decision that communicates to the other person they're untrustworthy, they're not a person of character or of honor or of morality or ethics it is just a bridge too far. Over the years, we've come to know that's what's producing that anxiety about keeping the money. But, and people will go, oh, yeah, that's what's going on. It would be awkward. Left to their own devices, they have very little insight into this. And this, this is fascinating that people are having these substantive emotional reactions about a ruddy artificial game that only involves $5. It involves them so much they want to talk about it afterward. They stay after debriefing, but they have no insight or they they don't demonstrate much insight into what's actually causing them to take a risk that they would never take against a lottery wheel. Taking a risk on a person is different from taking a risk against lotteries or a flip of a coin or, to use the economist term, a bet against nature. People are much more willing to take on social risks than risks against nature. And that's fascinating in some sense that there's this profound thing going on for people in this ruddy little game, but they don't have insight into it.
0: That's fascinating. So I don't think you will give back any money to me. And yet I trust because I think, okay, distrusting you would be disrespectful it would be insulting and trusting you would be be kind of a gift, would be a generous thing to do. It's interesting that people would not immediately say when asked about why they made that decision that, Oh, because I'm a good person, (laughs) Right? People like to feel good about themselves, especially in the moral domain, and like to think, oh, I'm morally superior to others. And so one could expect from that perspective that people would think, oh, no, I didn't act on some norm or wanted to be nice. I am a nice person, and that's why I trust it, and that they might actually believe it. But it seems like people are more open-minded in this space to the idea that, yeah, the norm really had an influence, and I just wanted to be nice.
1: No, I think that's right. Because part of the reason it took us a good decade to figure out what was going on is, uh, especially in my world, you think that if people are doing something that goes against their economic interests, even if it's only 10 bucks, let's say, the reason they're doing it is because they're signaling the type of person they are. And self signaling is just a big driver of a lot of human decision, a lot of human action. A lot of people, for example, buy. Too big a car because they want to show to themselves that they can afford it. A lot of people don't knock this, uh, will buy an electric car because they want to think of themselves as an environmentalist. So you can think of that as an ulterior motive, but it does help the environment out, if you will. So it, a lot of actions are about me, 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 and what am I saying about me? And I have this audience of me that I want to impress with what me is doing, if you will. And so we went down that path and it really didn't explain what was going on until we figured out, ah, the signal people are trying to send is not about themselves. They're wary or concerned about the signals they're sending to other people about what they think about those other people. And, you know, our, our lives are infused with a lot of moves, if you will, that we do because we're concerned about the signals we're, we're sending to other people. I mean, linguists know this. I mean, it's the reason why we say, can you pass the salt? as opposed to passing the salt because we want to honor uh, or send the signal that the other person is a uh, an honorable being who is in control and can make correct decisions if you will and can you pass the salt maybe a trivial trivial example of it but there are, there are a lot of things we just won't say to other people because we do want to maintain social harmony and we want to maintain the idea that uh, we think well of them. And I think what what we've been seeing in our studies is just how well learned that is. Um, people are just very concerned about the signals they send to other people. And it's uh, it, it's so automatic. It's so overlearned. It's so just quick in us that it comes into play with this very esoteric game for having people play in the laboratory.
0: If a norm of trust can make us more trusting than we think we have reason to be. I assume a norm of distrust can make us less trusting than we think we have reason to be, right? So certain environments in which everyone assumes the worst in others and makes these instant cynical judgments and take pride on how self-reliant and distrustful they are and how they see through people and would never be fooled. It would seem naive to trust, even though maybe explicitly you think, I think I can trust this person. But maybe we act more distrustfully because we don't want to be seen as naive or as the sucker for the group. I think that's right. What's interesting, if you take a look at uh, data and
1: how people answer surveys and how they act around the world, what's interesting is cultures differ in terms of how expansive a circle they have of who they feel compelled to trust or who they do trust. Versus who they don't trust. There is a sociological concept called the trust radius, which is how far out do you go before you start thinking the way that you're thinking? Now, either I'm unsure or I'm just going to assume the other person is distrustful. What characterizes Western countries like the United States, Switzerland is the biggest of this is the radius is just large. People trust strangers. If you think about it, a lot of our interactions every day are with strangers. And so the culture has constructed or fallen into a norm that you are to assume, even if you don't privately believe that everybody is trustful, if you will. So you will trust strangers, and we see that in the lab. Though there are other cultures where um, who you trust and who you cooperate with collapses down. And some where it's really only... People in your family, people in your clan, people who are kids, those, are those people you can trust. Everybody else, mm, uh, no, you're not going to cooperate or enter into business with them, for example. Depending on the question being asked and depending on what culture you're in, how far out this, whether or not what I private believe or not, I'm going to trust you. How big a radius
0: that is for people really depends on where they grew up. So norms of trust can be different between countries, but of course, they can also change within countries. And many people would say that in America, people have become less trusting. Trust is on the decline. We are in a trust crisis and dramatic things like that. What do you think is happening in America right now? Are we seeing a different norm of uh, trust or distrust being replaced? Are things actually getting worse? What is happening?
1: Well, it's an interesting question because the other thing about trust is it really is specific. If, if you will, that is, there are people you trust and people that you won't trust. And I had reason recently to take a look at data about how much do you trust X. Let's talk about institutions. And it is the case that some institutions are being trusted much less than they used to, or at least that's what people express from the 1990s and the 1980s. So people are much more likely to distrust government, the press, big business religions, for example, but not everything. That is, uh, people still trust science. Yay. They trust the military. They trust the police, just at the same levels that they used to. They trust small business. What's interesting is uh, we are getting, for some institutions, less trust. And this doesn't cover every case, but the theme to me when I take a look is that anything that touches politics is now less trusted than it used to be. And, but more things are are now touching politics, if you will. I mean, politics, the media now is seen as politicized. Religion now is much more politicized than it was certainly when I was a child. So things that are politicized are be, are also following what's happening with trust in the government. But things that lie outside the government, are well, except for the military, are just as trusted as they used to be. And that, well, there are a number of different things going on right now. One of the major political features of our country right now is just how polarized it is. So there used to be sort of a grand middle or let's say a grand consensus in the United States or disagreements. The consensus may have excluded some people. Now things are very polarized and polarization has taken a different cast, which is it's now much more emotional. It's much more affective. We don't disagree as much about issues. We disagree about teams and people, if you will. One way to put it is that, let's say circa 1960, maybe 4 or 5% of people would say they'd be worried if their kids wanted to marry someone of the opposite political party. And now that figures up to like 35%, sort of symmetrically uh, with both parties, suggesting that partisanship is just different. And we are making sort of an us versus them distinction. But remember, the, the thing to remember is trust is important, but trust is really about who you're specifically dealing with. And trust about institutions like the government doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to trust less when you're talking about individuals. So we've done a few studies about with our little game about whether Democrats will trust Republicans, Republicans trust Democrats, and people still at the individual level, that doesn't have an impact. People are just as likely to trust someone from the opposite side politically, uh, as they are someone from the same side. But talk about Republicans and Democrats, well, that's a whole different matter.
0: All right, so we are talking about norms of trust and distrust at the national, even global level. What about Interpersonal norms. So, between individuals, let's say we are interacting for the first time, as we have discussed secretly. I don't actually trust you, Dave, but I act as if I do because there's a norm of respect and and trust. It seems like that would impact how you treat me. So, I trust you. I am being nice. And you're like, oh, that's nice. And then you probably feel the same pressure to be nice to me. But what if I distrust you? And I say, no, nope, I don't trust you. It seems like there's less pressure for you to be nice back to me, right? Because why should you be? And so I'm interested in these interpersonal dynamics in which how I treat you is almost self-fulfilling in how you treat me back.
1: Well, I think that's right. I mean, there are two things going on. There's that. That is, if because trusting each other, despite what we privately believe, sort of does set up a, a set of rules that allows us to interact with one another. And it appears that it's beneficial to assume we're both trusting then we're untru- uh, untrusted. And th- that has to be the case. That is, uh, the thing about trust is that it's usually beneficial when it goes wrong. It go- can go very wrong. That's the problem. But trusting in the main does make life more pleasant, or especially back if you go to all these international surveys, those countries with higher levels of trust also don't write contracts that are as long and tend to have economies that boom more. So there are measurable correlates, associations with being uh, high trusting. And if we establish the fact that we're going to treat each other with disdain and distrust, well, okay, that's that's what we've negotiated. So that's what we're going to be. And I don't know if that's going to be pleasant or not, but it's also determines whether or not we get into a Relationship at all. That is the main problem with people being overly cynical is that they just miss a lot of trustworthy people they could have fine friendships, business relationships, or even marriages with. Because at that level, they're overly cynical. That is, if they're, we force people to make a decision whether or not they're going to trust. But in real life, often you have choices about who you're going to uh, trust or not. And being overly cynical might mean that you just miss out on a lot of great social relationships that would have just made your life better. That's that's certainly possible, and leave you, or even make worse this cynicism that we tended to find in people, where they really overbelieved how selfish other people could be. So, um, and you could just think about it logically. Uh, that is, if you act on your beliefs of cynicism and trust, you can end up being whoppingly over cynical. Why is that? Well, let's imagine that you trust another person. And so you enter into a relationship and either they turn out to be trustworthy or they turn out not to be trustworthy. You can make a mistake. And what does the mistake educate you about it? It educates you to the fact that there are untrustworthy people in the world. So you factor that into your theory about human nature. You become more cynical. Now, let's say that you don't trust another person. Uh, what are you going to do? Well, you're, you're not going to enter into a relationship with them. You're just not because they're untrustworthy. Now, here's the problem. They could have proven you right, but it could have turned out that they were just wonderful, fantastic, terrific people. You made a mistake, but you're never going to get that feedback. You're never going to get the optimistic correction, if you will, about uh, human nature. So not trusting other people may mean that you miss out on a lot of uh, wonderful experiences you could have had. You do miss out on some horrible experiences. But you also are left with a biased view of human nature. And, and we've shown this with data uh, in a study that we did that we can correct this cynicism that people have about others if we give them feedback about every single person they have a chance to interact with. they get, It dawns on them, wow, people are a lot nicer than I thought they were. They're, they're, they're a lot more generous than I thought they would be. But if we give them no feedback or give them feedback only when they decide to trust the other person, this is like life, but no feedback when they say, I don't want to give the $5 to this other person, then they continue, they maintain this overly cynical view of the world. So choices of trust have a lot of consequences. A lot of the consequences lie outside of a world we could have experienced, but we never got to experience because we didn't
0: trust another person. Which is even deeper a problem or theoretical observation than we are inaccurate in perceiving how trustworthy others are. Because that would assume other people have a fixed level of trustworthiness that we can accurately or inaccurately perceive. But the trustworthiness is not entirely fixed, right? It depends on many things and it can fluctuate from context to context. They are to us, for example, by how we treat them, right? And we seem to have very little insight into that.
1: No, I think that's absolutely right, which is that in some sense, we don't recognize how much we don't get feedback about things and we don't understand how much we're the re- we are the reason why we don't get feedback about such things. I mean, decide not to trust another person, for example. We don't realize what's that how that is damaging our information environment about learning about the human race. I think it also makes another point, which I think researchers are beginning to recognize, which is especially if you're coming out of the Stanford tradition. The Stanford tradition is a lot about errors and biases and decision. How do we? What's going on to make us reach decisions that are to our detriment? Um, that are wrong. And usually the story is, well, there's something we do or that there's an active mistake that we make. We're not being rational, if you will. Uh, We're not being perfect statisticians or logicians or whatever. What this work suggests, if you think about it, is that we might actually have terrific internal decision-making processes going on, um, we might be incredibly rational or reasonable in the way we're thinking about things. The only problem is, is that we act in such a way that we get bad data from the world. We don't trust people. We don't learn that a lot of them will be trustworthy. So we don't get that those data. So the data are corrupted, but then we reasonably read, you know, the information, the experience, the data that we have. And that's a major way in which people can come to misunderstandings about the world and misunderstandings about the self. If we traverse, for example, back to Dunning-Kruger uh, and why people don't know about their incompetencies, a lot of people don't know about their incompetencies because they're incompetent. And so people withhold from them rewards or benefits that they could have gotten if they were more competent. They just don't know about them. So, okay, let's say you're a bore talk too much your jokes are unfunny it's terrible it's likely that there are hundreds of dozens of parties you're never invited to that you never hear about and so you think you're doing fine because you don't you don't know all the data the world has constructed about maybe maybe you should work on your sense of humor a little bit but you you never get the data and so a lot of errors that people make isn't necessarily about thinking about what they know wrong. It's not getting the accurate data. They're thinking
0: about things right, but they're not getting accurate data about the world. If we are more compliant to do good things, to be kind, it seems like we might also be more compliant to do bad things and to do what other people tell us to do just because we are more compliant to rules and norms than we think we are. And so it seems like maybe This highlights that we can also comply to do bad things, which, of course, brings us back to all the famous conformity experiments in social psychology, where people say things they don't believe just to conform to the group and not dissent. Oh, that's right. Likewise, not not to speak up about what they think might be wrong in a group, just because they want to be kind and respectful.
1: Oh, I think that's absolutely absolutely right. That is, yeah, I I think one way to put it is that we, part of the problem with social life is trying to be nice and respect other people is we might not be as honest as we can be. And so people don't get an honest impression of themselves because they never get honest feedback from other people. But it gets worse than that. That is, we might comply to what the group says. And if there's if there's any message that keeps getting rediscovered, social psychology is just how responsive we are to social norms and don't know how responsive we are to social norms. We keep doing that. But not only that, we are responsive to social norms that we think other people have, but they don't necessarily have. That is, you can get into a paradoxical situation where everybody thinks one thing, but everybody thinks other people think the opposite thing. So I guess the the example that comes to mind is college students are often quite uncomfortable about drinking, but they see everybody else drink and they kind of go, well, but the crowd likes drinking. I might as well go along with the crowd. And everybody else in the crowd is kind of going, well, you know, I'm really uncomfortable drinking, but well, everybody else is drinking. Uh, so um they, they like it, so I might as well go along. So everybody is going along with a social norm or a social attitude they think other people have, everybody likes drinking when privately people would rather stop and that that's the classic phenomenon of pluralistic ignorance where everybody privately thinks one thing, but they go along with something opposite because everybody else looks like you know they're going along with it that they, you know they're perfectly fine with it. And college drinking has is, is certainly been shown to be one example of that. And if only you can, and actually this is an intervention that's often done, if only people were told what other people actually privately thought about drinking, how they were worried about it, a little shamed of some things that might have happened while they were drunk. If everybody knew what everybody privately thought, people would act differently. But unless some external agent comes through and does some sort of intervention, the original situation of everybody drinking when everybody privately is uncomfortable about their drinking, that can go on for a long, long time. So that shows you, if you will, the power of norms, that people will follow norms, even to the extent that the norm they're following is actually a false norm that's created because everybody's following norms they think other people have.
0: What kind of research would you like to see in this space, the social psychology of trust and respect? Are there any unanswered questions or do you think we have it all figured out?
1: Oh no, in fact, um uh, what's interesting about trust is that other fields, academic fields are absolutely obsessed with it. Economics, sociology, behavioral biology is obsessed with it because it's it shouldn't be. It's it's shouldn't happen because other fields that adopt a rational actor model, everybody is selfishly pursuing and rationally pursuing their self-interest. And this trust thing just violates it all. There is a philosopher of science, Donna Hathaway, who described not only trust, but all altruism as something of a scandal, because according to a lot of fields of academic pursuit, it should not happen. Everybody should be just pursuing their selfish interest. Well, we should all be Klingons from the original Star Trek, I guess is the way to put it, Uh, you know, who are just... Nasty, awful, pure bad guys, and I have to—I do have to admit—as a—as a kid, though, I was always confused by the Klingons. Uh, I think I was right because if look—if the Klingons are really that way, no trust, they screw each other around, uh, they're evil, they're selfish. They're rude. That culture is never going to get it together enough to actually build a spaceship. I'm sorry, they don't want to have the requisite cooperation. It's an incoherent culture. And you'll notice, okay, for those of you who are trackers, that in the next generation of Star Trek, the next generation, they started introducing aspects of the culture that would produce cohesion, this notion of honor, that you had to do things for your clan and clans had to cooperate with one another. And there was a code of conduct. That was completely missing the original track. Now I've completely lost what the question is. But future uh, directions we want to see. in the Oh, field. future direction. Okay, back to this, which is okay. Thank you for directing <laughs> me back. Sorry, that was that was a rant I had to get off my chest. Uh, bad writing. Please, that was great. I to yeah, be writing. But the I think we should join the conversation about uh, trust, but also altruism and social cohesion because there have to be mechanisms that produce this. That other fields, given their theoretical slant, especially the rational actor, selfish material interest seeking organism, they don't have the theoretical mechanism to really figure out or to solve the scandal, if you will. Psychology does because it often talks about everything else that might be producing a social cohesion. For example, uh, in our work, the fact that people are worried about the signal they're sending to another person. So it's not about the outcomes that the situation is supposedly about. It's about this negotiation of social relationships. Well, that sounds very much like psychology and we should be in, into that. So that's number, number one. What are these mechanisms of social cohesion that not only produce altruism and trust and cooperation, um, but also produces... If you will, that's key. What are the, the main mechanisms that are allowing for people to act good? That's number one. The second thing is the topic of norms is very messy once you get into it. I mentioned like 20 definitions of trust. There must be hundreds of definitions of what a norm is. And the norm, uh, what are people doing, Come in, comes in many, many different flavors. But norms are very powerful in terms of what people do. People do the norm, and often they don't know that they're doing the norm. That's what makes it hard to study, is you don't necessarily know. Here's an example I like, because if you're going to talk about what's a human activity that's essential for civilization, uh, language is that. But language involves a lot of cooperation. And it involves a lot of norms that are so well-learned, we don't know that we've learned them. So let's imagine, this is an example from a linguistic study, that I have a little knife here. And someone says, oh, what a lovely little French whittling knife. Now, that's a per, you know that's a perfectly allowable sentence. But the person could have said, oh, what a lovely uh, French whittling, lovely little knife. Now, as soon as you hear it, you know it's wrong, but you don't know why it's wrong. But there are... A lot of rules in language, a lot of norms that we follow that makes language easier to execute, easier to speak, and easier to hear and understand. And linguistics have been working on these norms for decades. And that has to be true for behavior as well. There are norms that we're following, but they're so well-learned, we don't know that we're following them. And in our work, what we've argued is people are following the norm of respect. They have they trust another person because they have to, the norm is to respect the character, the goodwill of the other person. But that people are doing this, but they they have no explicit knowledge that they're doing this. So I would love it if there were more of a study in psychology, just like there is in sociology, for example, of the grammar of norms like there is a grammar of language, because there are lots of rules that we're following. They're very powerful, but we we don't recognize their impact. So that's a very general answer, but I think it's a very general issue that there's a lot of exciting stories
0: to be told if, if people would turn their attention to that issue. As we are running up against time, I want to ask you two final questions that are very zoomed out and very general in a sense. Um, The first is many of our listeners might be people just starting out in a career in psychology. What general advice do you have for people? And then relatedly and more specifically, how do you know an idea is worth pursuing in research? Two
1: very, very good questions. The first thing people should do is ask this question of a lot of different people. First thing that I would suggest in terms of if you're just starting out, read, 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 read stuff. Read the old stuff, the classic stuff and Read new stuff as it's coming out. And don't think that the only thing that you have to read is in your little narrow area or even the little narrow area of psychology. So I've learned a lot, for example, by looking at recent philosophy, for example, uh, that's been very relevant to my work. And this work on trust is exactly informed by games that were developed in behavioral economics, for example, and the really economic side of economics. So read, if you can't stand reading, there are tons of people giving talks or instruction on YouTube, watch that. Just sort of learn, if you will, especially when you start forming topics that you're interested in, try to think of, find things that are related to it so you can find out what other people have been thinking. Uh, I've often found that really informs what I do. What's a good idea? That's the second question. There are a lot of indicators of a good idea. The first is do you continue to think about it weeks after you've thought about it? Mm-hmm. Um, often I'll have students come up with a great idea they just had today, and I say, come back in a week, and we'll see if you still think it's a great idea. But ask, I think uh, one way to think about it is, and this might be an unusual answer, uh, different from what other people have said in the past. Is this an idea that leads to other ideas? And in particular, does it, uh, if you think of the idea, do you start thinking, well, I thought it was this, but now that I think about it and peel it back a little bit, actually, it's about something deeper. Hmm. And you continue to sort of go back and realize it's really about something deeper. Uh, Why are people misestimating What other people are doing in this little trust game that we present to people in the lab. That was the original question at the very least. But then it led to questions as to why are people trusting even though they expect to be screwed? What is really going on here? It doesn't seem to be about the outcome. People really are afraid about being betrayed, but it doesn't influence what they they think. They're more concerned about, they're more nervous about insulting the other person. Uh, What does that say about um, human behavior? Well, It suggests that a lot of our behavior isn't about the outcomes we wish to produce, like more money. It's really about our behavior is really about the actions we do directly. That's sort of interesting. That's a very different way to think about things. It leads to this discussion of norms that we talked about that wasn't there. That is, you keep peeling it back. You keep finding other ideas or other issues that are there. And so if you have an idea that seems to skip to other questions, maybe even big questions, or insights that you never would have guessed that you've gotten to. If you're thinking or you're working on an idea, leads to that that's a good idea. Does it lead? Uh, that is, uh, when you pull back the curtain on your idea, you find out, go oh, no, it's really about this other thing. There's a Wizard of Oz back there somewhere, and you haven't gotten, you haven't pulled the right curtain yet to find out who's the character who really pulling the levers.
0: Thank you so much for making the time. That was a wonderful conversation.
1: Oh, thank you, thank you for letting me uh, go on
0: and on. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.